Brew Theology listeners, we are back with Michelle Warren, part two, talking about her book, Power of Proximity. We continue this conversation with Michelle, wanting you listeners to have two weeks to digest this conversation. Michelle is the real deal, and if you buy her book, she wants to give away all of her proceeds because that's exactly the kind of person that she is. Michelle is an encouragement to me as well as many others throughout the city. I'm, uh, I'm going to use the word blessed. I'm blessed to know that she is in this city doing the work that she's doing. I think whether if you call yourself a Christian or you're not a Christian, that Michelle is the kind of person worth becoming. Uh, she has a heart for the poor and the oppressed. She's an advocate for the marginalized, and she's all about policy change and doing that not for issues, but for the sake of the people that she lives with right next door. So if you like this episode, or if you liked the episode before this, make sure that you go online and you rate it, review it, share it. Go to Brew underscore Theology on Twitter, along with Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology. Also, head over to the website, brewtheology.org. Look at the different ways in which you can partner and sponsor. Maybe you start a chapter like our friends out in Greeley, Colorado. Also, our friends out in New Jersey, the Jersey Boys. We're going to have Nate on the show. They're going to have a special program for us, along with Canton, Ohio, in Northwest Metro, we would love for you to be a part of this alliance that's brand new. We think that what we do, brewing theology and creating healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue in pub communities is, is not just uh, something that's forward-thinking and creative and, you know, like cutting edge, but really it's actually making a difference in our lives. It's changing us. It's allowing us to love our neighbors as ourselves much better. At least for me, it has. I can speak for myself. And so if you want to support us in any way, head to the website and there's all the different ways in which, um, you know, you can do all that kind of research. So without further ado, here is Michelle Warren for part two. How do you keep, well, because I say issues and I, I caught myself out loud, verbally processing this. How do you keep these issues knowing this is about people and friends um, at the forefront uh, because we are in the social media age where it's like the next thing. And so uh, that was last week's thing, even though, no, it's still this week's thing and it will continue to be. How do you, how do you do that? I think sometimes in the social justice world, we, we feel like there's a faddish element. Like we're going to run from one issue to another issue. And I'm just saying I'm staying on this issue because these are my neighbors. You know, when I started working along, I mean, when I started really saying, God has a heart for the poor, this was before 1996, before the, you know, the welfare reform bill where everybody in the church seemed to believe that the poor were fleecing the government and, you know, taking advantage of everybody. And so it's interesting how political dynamics change the way you view things, you know, and so I've been, you know, I was working alongside the poor and lifting up their cause when it wasn't flashy. And so maybe, you know, I got to ride a few years that maybe it's kind of flashy, but, you know, for a while. But if, even if it dies down, I'm not going to stop because this is a relationship, right? You know, and the same with immigration. So, I mean, I... I would love people to care as much as I do, but I think apart from relationships, it's it's hard to stay in it for the long haul. If I didn't know people, I would have quit. I mean, there is nothing exciting about working on something that you lose all the time. A few years ago, <laughs> I was thinking of my friend Dave Clark. Um, he he's he's a great guy, and he and I were on staff together and um, at CCDA. And our president Noel, he was on sabbatical, so it was kind of like Dave and I had to deal with um, when the 
the uh, officer for Michael Brown's shooting was not indicted and the rallies and the protests started. And then we had Eric Gardner and I can't breathe. And, you know, there's all of these different series. It seemed like every week I had to do another response. Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I remember in December, it was, it was a hard week. Another, I'd watched more kids of my high school walking out, you know, along the streets and I felt their cries and their desperation because I wondered if anybody was paying attention. And I remember calling Dave and like, okay, what are we going to do this time? I don't remember exactly which video had been launched at this point, but it was during that time where there were so many series. And, and he said, you know, Michelle, I don't understand. How can you work on stuff like this knowing that you're going to lose? Now, Dave, Dave was in it for the long haul too. I mean, he'd had decades of experience. So I almost found it surprising that he asked me that question because we were going to do it anyway. And I remember telling him, I said, you know what, Dave, every day I have to choose to drink a glass of hope and I have to swallow it hard. And some days the glass I need is bigger than others. And in swallowing it, I choose to move beyond pretending it's not happening, which people of privilege can do, right? Because it doesn't impact us. And somehow we can distance ourselves. I can't do that because they're my neighbors and my friends and I don't want to move. And I know I'm not, I don't want to. I mean, like I said, that's part of my lifeblood. You know, you don't give up on your family. So I'm not going to pretend things aren't happening the way they do. But I'm also not going to pretend, I'm not going to believe that the work that I'm doing or the efforts that we're trying and making and pushing into, even against religious institutions, you know, that, that I hail from that somehow that's not making a difference. I mean, there's, it's easy to live a life of a cynic and think, you know what, I'm just going to live for this moment or for myself. It really doesn't make a difference. But that hopeful Christian sets a vision of what can be. And it stays, you stay in it for the long haul because you're choosing hope every day, you know, and some days you need more hope than others. But I think, I mean, like I said, that this whole book isn't about proximity. It's about its power and it's powerful because it changes who you are. It's powerful because it compels a response that really gets to the heart of things. And it's powerful because it sustains you for the long haul because you're not fighting for issues. You're fighting alongside your family and you're choosing to remain engaged, even if it's a, it's a place of lament and a place of perceived failure. I mean, that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. You read it. Guess what? It looked like they lost a lot. You know, and that's the depiction of a journey of a Christian. is isn't about the results. It's about living by faith and keeping that vision. You know, if you look at that chapter in Hebrews 11, there's a part where, you know, I, I mean, I wish I had a Bible in front of me, so I'm going to botch it a little bit. But it's this idea that people, all of those people of faith, you know, are listed by name. And then the author of Hebrews is starting to panic. It's like, well, and then he starts naming, you know, listing people like Jeph- Jephthah and David and, you know, like just these lists, these Samson and, and Barak and, and then just starts kind of taking people, people who were sawn in two and just sort of puts some of the actions that happened against them. And they were all commended. Not because they saw results to their efforts, but because by faith they believed they were a part of something bigger and that their our collective efforts were going to make a difference. And as you continue to read, it says, you know, those people could have always returned, but they chose not because they were in search of something better. They were in search of that vision of what could be. And then there's this really great nugget that I think the church needs to wake up and read. So you've got this, they, they could have chosen to return, but they kept longing and working towards something better. And that's why God is not ashamed to call them his people. 
this isn't about me. This isn't even about the immigrants that I know. This is a huge narrative that has started since creation and it will go, you know, until the end of time that we are not supposed to be doing efforts because of the results we're getting and that we can see. We're supposed to be living by faith and putting into what we can't see. That's what makes you, Hebrews says, that's what makes you, ple- you know, God's pleased with you if you can live by faith. And that's why he's not ashamed to call of us his people. And so I don't want this book or this narrative to be about me and my chosen proximity. I want it to be a clarion call to the church to set a vision of what can be and fight together for justice. I think uh, there's kind of two things that come to mind and maybe they're the same. A lot of us in the evangelical tradition um, sacrificed everything for years and years and years and got burned. And, And I know many, many people, I know many, many stories of people that have left and they're not coming back. And they're not going to return to do anything for God because they were destroyed by the system and by this call that said no matter what it costs you, no matter where you have to live, no matter what you have to do, you must give everything. So I guess out of that, what I'd ask you is, so how have you, if you're willing to share, like how have you walked this and taken care of yourself and your family in the midst of that. And I, I think this resonates with a lot of a lot of our listeners and that many of them have been in ministry and have we've if we've been in ministry, we've done the sacrifice thing and often to the detriment of our families and our friends. And so if you're willing to share what does that look like and, and made it possible for you to do this for being in the same location for twenty four years and the same house for twenty years and what are some of the things that have enabled you to do that and hold on to this hope and hold on to this place of service that you have? Hmm. You know, I, I've been burnt out and burnt up and blown away so many times. And so I can resonate with what you're saying. You know, I think we are human and human people, you know, are fragile. And I think it's not just your physical health, but your emotional and your mental and your spiritual health. And I think it is really easy to ignore or to somehow um, spiritualize the destruction of those. And I'm, I'm, I'm not like a counselor person, so, but I do know that we need to really care for our mental health and we really need other people. I, you know, I started talking about the CCDA in the beginning because that network has really been so important and it isn't just like the national network, it's the local network, it's leaders who are honest and, you know, are in this for the long haul and recognize that you need human connection. There's, there's a lot of different things that I would say, you know, on an individual level and on an organizational level that needs to be put in place, um, you know, probably to sustain us. But I, 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 don't, I don't really think there is one answer, you know, and, and I do think that that there are definitely seasons of rest. And, and, I, and I do think that there are periods of disillusionment that people do walk away. And I'm grieved because there's typically a lot of different factors, you know, that have played into that. And I don't really think it was about Jesus. You know, I think Jesus is probably pretty sustaining. And a lot of times we get blinded by our own, you know, I mean, leaders get blinded by arrogance and ego and and sometimes don't even care for the people that are are under them you know and and sometimes we we see that you know people fall away so I don't don't know if I have a real good answer um for that and and the story that came to mind Janelle when you were asking me the question it's I don't think they're always mutually exclusive but I will say this you know for me uh, fear of 
you know, reputation and integrity were definitely something that I was a little concerned about. So, so I know you're talking a little bit more about burnout and I think that's one piece. And I, I would say, I think y'all, sh- y'all need to invite somebody to talk about that a little bit more. I mean, I've been able to, but you know, God has been so kind and gracious and I've got some really wonderful leaders around me that have, have really helped me and have taught me a lot. So I am grateful for that. But, but as far as like, you know, all of the different things that are at stake, you know, I, I definitely have, there's a lot of people who would probably like to distance themselves, you know, from me just because I don't maybe represent all of that, you know, that, that they do. And I remember when I was down in the Southeast, you know, with some friends and we were talking about just all of the cost, you know, that happens because you change you change and you don't fit. It's like a square peg <laughs> fitting in a round hole. You know, I'm different, you know, and my family's going to love me, but you know, it's like, Oh, she's no fun at a dinner party anymore. Like what happened? She just like, is so, he- you know, I'm not heavy, but it's like, she always just has such a weird experience and a weird perspective. So I don't fit in, you know, and, and I'm okay with that. But I also know that when you stand up for people, especially in political environments, you, you know, you, you can be very polarizing and you can, you know, get a lot more opinions shouted at you and a lot of judgments. And we practice tribalism. So it's like, oh, yeah, you're not my tribe sort of push out kind of thing. And so I was in the Southeast. and I was having this conversation with these friends talking about things that we had lost. And I said, you know, I know that there's been a lot of sacrifice involved, but I hope that you know, by the end, I can still have like my reputation and my integrity in play. And I was thinking about that in such a noble way. And this guy um, said to me, a friend said to me, he's like, why should you be able to have that? You know, when Jesus lost all of that at the end. And that was just like a sobering, you know, thing to consider. It's like, man, I follow somebody who was put to death as a political statement you know, and they couldn't even find anything wrong with him. There was nothing wrong with his integrity. There was nothing wrong with his name. He was doing, you know, the Pharisees couldn't wait to get rid of him. The sad, you know, they just hated him so much that they would rather have Barabbas and make this statement like, you will not overthrow the institution. You will not, you know, push back. We'll kill you before you do that. And so Jesus lost everything by the end, you know, you know, killed as a, you know, as a perceived criminal. So what do I think I'm going to gain at the end? You know, and so I know that I don't want to talk about that in light of self-care because I don't want people to take this in a martyrdom in a direction that I'm not meaning. I just meant for me personally, you know, is there anything that I wouldn't be willing to sacrifice? Man, it's been hard and I'm sure it's going to be even harder as I continue this journey, you know, following Christ. But I that's who I followed, you know, and that's how he ended up. So I would imagine that many of us who are following him are really not going to find it, you know, so well at the end. It wouldn't surprise me, you know, if I lose my perceived reputation in the institution, my perceived integrity, you know, as I follow the one who gave everything, mm-hmm. you know, to set justice. Okay. Thank you. You talked about the costs of the way you live now in proximity and um, and, and this, uh, ties back to one of the questions from earlier that I was asking you about having the conversation with kind of the middle-class Christian and there's costs, but you also like your stories are really moving and actually, you know, I'm hearing stories of a really rich life in your community with your family, right? Your language was your family, which I can imagine is this really tight knit, rich, lively community. And so you've also gained this amazing, rich family as you describe it. So 
that seems like a, 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 a gap or an area where people have a hard time imagining, you know, losing the costs of what you're talking about, as, as you were just discussing, um, but also the richness that that comes in that in that sort of um, uh, transition, with a lack of a better word, or uh, that uh, transformation, maybe is a better word than transition. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but... Uh, but I've found that really interesting as part of the conversation. Yeah, I remember we had um, been living in a community for about two or three years, and it was sort of we decided, oh, maybe we'd start to have a family, and that sort of ups the ante, right? You know, it's just like one thing when you implicate yourself, and your parents are like, "What are you doing? That is so dumb." Um, you know, now you're bringing children in the world. It's like, what? You know, and I think even as a parent, you know, you, I, Dave, and I had so many great opportunities for education and, and church and, and just life that we're like, would we really, if we love our kids, deny our kids that? And, you know, so every day was sort of a, a trust and really following what the Holy Spirit w- would have for us. But, but I remember that summer that we had thought, wow, I think it's kind of time to have that, you know, like move forward and maybe bring some kids into this crazy life of ours. And I was off for the summer cause I was a teacher and, um, you know, I was meditating on the minor prophets. And not too often do we do that, but, you know, I thought, well, I keep reading what I already believe, so I'm going to try some new stuff, and I decided to meditate on the minor prophets, and I found myself in Jonah. And I don't think God would have me swallow in a whale if I went home. I really don't. I mean, I really think this is a choice, but, but Jonah is in the belly of the whale, and he prays this prayer, and there's this verse that says that he prays out, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I remember reading that and I kept thinking, you know, I didn't think safe neighborhoods or good schools or polished church performances or all of these things that my kids would probably not have were worthless idols. I thought those were good things. That's what good Christian parents did, right? But I remember having to re-grieve and recommit that, God, if those are what you are asking me to hold out as worthless idols, I don't want to forfeit the grace that you have for me. And it was just another act of submission. And I can't say that that was the last time. I mean, it came over and over again. But I was so grateful for that that time and that, and that very poignant verse to remind me that what I think in human is, is, is worthless. Things that I would hold on to that would keep me from really what God's goodness is. I was willing to, you know, have to recommit that. So it was very painful. <laughs> I mean, some of those conversations brought David and I, my husband Dave, and I, um, you know, to some of our greatest odds, you know, at times. But knowing that it was really a call in both of our lives, it was very independent, even though it was collective, and, and just having to wrestle through that. And, you know, I, I mean, there's lots of people that make these choices, and they send their kids to different schools, or they, you know, I don't know, contract out, you know, youth groups or whatever. We just did not feel like that was what God would want for us to do. And it was so confirmed and affirmed regularly. And I'll just tell you this one story. I was wrestling again. I think our daughter was like six. My husband like won every Awana trophy for those. I mean, like I didn't go to Awana. He was just a very good Christian. And if both of us could get gold stars, you know, to be a good Christian, we had more than all of you, I'm sure of it. But, but but anyway, so I, I was just like, oh, I can't believe our kids aren't memorizing scripture and they don't know the books of their Bible. And, you know, they're at this homeless church that I absolutely love and I would not take it away. And they're doing definitely, you know, experiencing the Holy Spirit in, in new and fresh ways than I had had. 
But I, I remember feeling a little sad too. It was a, it was a part where I was like, are we doing a bad job? I mean, like she's six and shouldn't she be like contracted out? And I just knew the Lord was saying, no, not for you, not for you, not for you. So I won't judge other people who are doing it, but that was just really clear for us. So we were at the church one night and I wish you could be at open door. You had a visual on this podcast because, you know, we have a very high disabled community. You know, we have a lot of homeless people. It's very, you know, mixed race. And I mean, just a young, old, just a really, really robust uh, representation of, of people. And one, uh, somebody had been sharing one Sunday night and Sydney was listening, I guess. And you know, it was during this time that I was really struggling and, and Sid walked out after listening to the service and she just kind of, I mean, six-year-old girls have a way of floating sort of through things anyway, but she was sort of floating down this handicap ramp and, you know, in this really interesting environment that you wouldn't have thought a little blondie would be doing, be in, but it was her life. And she just said, you know, mom, what so-and-so said tonight, it just really spoke to me. And I mean, she was just so full of joy and happiness. And I was like, God, I'm so sorry that I would think she'd need a red Awana vest with patches. She's catching exactly what you intend. And so I had a couple of those experiences where the Lord and the Holy Spirit just rebuked me to even think that I would be able to program out his plan for me or for my family. That's good stuff. So a lot of our listeners may be post-Awana award winners or Bible drill champions. Sword drill. I was a pioneer girl, but we (laughs) still did sword drills, and I could take you any day. But I would also say, speaking of worthless idols, maybe some of our mothers would say that what we do on occasion, drinking these beverages of high ABV quality, is a worthless idol. However, Ken over here, the the pastor Ken, the, the pastor of the taps, has me drinking the Metal Minister's Predestined Double IPA. And this may be a good transition, but that's a labeled beer. So when you hear predestination double IPA, you giggle a bit if you know what he's talking about. So then you think Calvinist. Oh, and then you go there. But now in the Western world, we love labels. You are an evangelical Christian, Michelle. A lot of our listeners, they know that word well. They were evangelical. Some still are, but not many. How come you're still an evangelical? If you leave the club, you don't get a voice. You know, I think many of my friends who have no longer called themselves evangelicals have not left the theology of evangelicalism and certainly haven't left Christ and his word and his kingdom. Uh, They just don't like the stigma that comes along with being an evangelical. And I don't like that either. I really don't. I, you know, I've used it. I remember... I remember using it publicly. I I used it in 2005, I think, for the first time after being arrested. That's another conversation in D.C. um, around the moral budget. That was like my one of my earlier, earlier actions. But I remember saying evangelicals need to care about the poor. And I thought, wow, that's really weird that I'm actually using that word. And then I kind of went dormant for a while until about 2009 when I began to work more on immigration reform. So I had been doing policy around housing and homelessness and doing a lot of community efforts around that and education policy and human service policy. But living in an immigrant community, I was like, well, I I think I probably should learn about what we're talking about here. And it wasn't like I realized I was talking about immigration policy. It just really was. Um, And I remember publicly making a statement January 2012. We had our 
it was, I think, the first public rally that was around the country where evangelicals, we, we toted signs that said pro-life is, is pro-immigrant. You know, we had NPR show up and all these news outlets because evangelicals caring about immigration just was not in the news. I think it was the first, you know, like I said, public rally. I was the opening speaker and I decided, I knew, I mean, it was like a, it was a deep conviction that I needed to use that word. Um, so I use it for two reasons. I keep it for two reasons. One is because it is who I am and it helps me advocate for other people. Yeah. And then I, I think the first and the second is very similar to the first in the sense that since it's who I am and even though I don't approve of, I mean, I don't agree with and they don't probably evangelicals don't agree with me on a lot of, I would say, I wouldn't even say they were theological points, but maybe social construct kinds of things that evangelicalism have, has been built around it's my resistance. I mean, that's how I resist. I mean, it's my practice of resistance to consider myself an evangelical and to publicly call that, especially as a white evangelical. I mean, last November, it was not a fun time to be a white evangelical, but then sometimes it was a little energizing because I'm just like, I don't know who those other 81% are, you know. That's but a big percentage. It's bigger than uh, President Bush or, you know, and no Republicans had never come in with that high. That was the highest we'd ever seen, you know, with, since polling had started, 81%. So I just thought, you know what, I, I need to lean in even more because I don't want white evangelical social construct to destroy the theology of it. Evangelical is a biblical word, too. You know, it's, it's, it's in biblical roots. And so that's why, you know, I, I'm not going to take it away. Um, but I definitely know that evangelicals would, some evangelicals would really love for me to take away that label because then they can say, oh, see, we don't have to listen to her. She's not one of us. We knew she wasn't one of us. And, and that's not true. I am. I'm not, I'm not just holding it, you know, intention, like, well, I'm calling this label that it's not true. It is true. And the only reason I leave the table is because I'm mad. And the only reason they would want me to leave the table is because they're mad. So I want to keep working on building bridges together. I don't think it's about power. I, I think it's about trying to build bridges. Yeah, and heaven forbid you actually live good news, which is what evangelical <laughs> exactly. means. It's good news. And it's good news Isaiah for the poor. Isaiah 61, this was Jesus' first sermon in yeah. Luke chapter 4. He rolls open the scroll. Good news to the poor. This is the spirit of jubilee right here, friends. But here's the thing about evangelical, though. I mean, I said this on a Facebook post, which you know, you, I think you had seen it, right, Ken? And it's like, you know, the word evangelical is like labeling a beer an IPA, which we, I'm drinking right now. Like, what do you mean by IPA? Is it malty? Is it citrusy? Is it danky? And, and is it, or is it just an ESB? Or is it New England style? And right now, Michelle's looking at me like, I don't know what he's talking about. But you, but you do know <laughs> she doesn't drink beer. It's okay. We don't judge her for that. beer. I'm but, allergic to it. I, but I, I used with, to. With evangelicals, and I think and I'm, I'm going to right now solidarity with evangelicals because I have come from an evangelical household. My parents are amazingly beautiful people. And regardless of theology of evangelicals, like there are some who probably live more justly than I will ever think of. So, no, I, I thank you for actually living the good news. So people quit messing with evangelicals out there. Well, I wish they would understand. I mean, I'm so glad you gave that whole like historical, you know, sort of reading of, of you know, when Jesus was at the temple, because it's good news for the poor. I don't think evangelicals in this day and age are good news for the poor. I mean, they need to be. They, I mean, they're not realizing their own roots of it should be good news for the poor. Well, uh, if I could just, you know, say in that I've got like two points, not really two questions, but maybe two different points that I'd love to hear your response on. And we, we touched on this one a little bit last week is, is coming from the outside. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm from the Methodist tradition. And right now the Methodist church is going through a 
big thing. I'm one of the radical, inclusive Methodists that's part of, you know, I'd, and, and people tell me all the time, how can you belong to that group when you don't believe? Well, I believe the vast majority of what they believe. There are certain things I disagree on. Um, and yet, and, and I think we touched on this a little last week at the gathering, but from the outside, from a mainline Protestant upbringing, more outside, not not even... I mean, to me, evangelical, the big E, quote-unquote, evangelical movement over the last 50 years has been prosperity gospel, white, rich males. It has not been about helping the poor. When it, when they say right to life, they really just mean anti-abortion. They're all for going to war to protect our oil companies. Um, you know, they're all for torturing people without, uh, you know, convicting them of crime. That's the outside view. And so, uh, again, uh, maybe you could just speak to, I guess, from an outsider's point of view, when you say, I believe in the evangelical theology I grew up in or I have, from the outside point of view, some people would say, why? I'm not going to defend evangelicals. That is for sure. Um, you know, that's I, okay. I probably know. I mean, sometimes you know your family's problems more than the outside. So I certainly could throw the, all of us under the bus really well. Um, but so I, I don't. I don't want to do that. There is definitely evangelicals. Definitely, I would say they consider themselves, and they're probably not ashamed of being called Christian capitalist. You know, and so when I look at some of the choices that were made in at the election, it was just, you know, to me, it was Christian capitalism, you know, and somehow they think that's noble and somehow... Is that an oxymoron? I'm just kind of, I don't know. Well, that's, okay, that's exactly what I'm trying to say, Ryan. Like, they're going to think that's noble. Oh, she complimented me. I'm like, uh, that was not a compliment. You know, so I think that there's just the way we see, and and I actually do hit this in our book. I, I, I think, you know, as, as, as important as us to understand racism and systemic issues, we need to understand the destructiveness of rugged individualism. And rugged individualism, I mean, I, I, Republicans and Democrats, neither of them are, are wholly righteous or in, all, all evil either. You know, there's just different ways of approaching things, you know, and Republicans usually are more on that individualist side. And, you know, as, and there's, an, there's, an, there's a theological aspect to that. You know, we're all accountable to God individually, you know, for, for how we lived our life, you know, and for who, where our faith is put, etc., but then Democrats are more about, you know, looking at the whole community. And I would say, you know, that's very biblical as well. We've got the body of Christ. We've got holistic justice. We've got Jubilee, you know, and so I don't think those parties. But the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times evangelicals, some of the reasons that people want to distance themselves is because they're seeing that Christian capitalism, individual rugged, rugged individualism, that is so part of the Republican Party that I just don't see the theological weight in the Bible to hold that up. So I, I think there's a lot of dupedness. You know, I think we've, you know, there's a, a lot of evangelicals who are unapologetically overtly Republican, you know, or, or, you know, there's probably many who are, are Democrats as well. Usually the line is seen on race, you know, mostly people of color, you know, that are evangelicals are, are going to be lining more Democrats. So, so I think, you know, that's, I mean, I think that's just important to just sort of call out. Um, and I am not, like I said, I'm not going to defend evangelical behavior, but I am going to call it into question because I don't think that behavior lines up with theology, 
you know, and the way we are supposed to live our lives following Christ, I mean, he says to take up our cross and to follow him, you know, and I've already pointed out some of the things that he did and some of the things that he called us to. And I'm concerned about the Christian church and it could be true of the mainline church or anybody who calls themselves a Christian, you know, and doesn't have a heart for the poor and doesn't have an awareness and doesn't have a responsibility or doesn't even think they have to do anything, but maybe give a little bit of money. I would just call that into question because I don't think that's living out an evangelical good news for the poor theology. So the second part of that question um, goes more into so so I've I'm I'm getting a little long in tooth myself and I've I've had enough years of watching uh, the socio political you know uh, development of the United States over the last fifty years and I've seen a lot of people I think a lot of this came out of the civil rights movement as well of the middle class upper middle class um, white religious people saying i want to be among the poor i want to be among the different races i want to be you know and and there's been a lot of that movement over the last 50 years of being in proximity um marching alongside people uh you talked earlier about the the all the shootings and the and the videos and everything that you've had to deal with and and that's that's awesome the question i kind of have and and i don't think you have just a simple answer for this i don't think any of us do um, is that over the last 50 years, what we've seen, and I love you quoted, i got to find it real quick. Last week, I think you quoted, who was Micah? No, you might talk about Micah, I think. And talked about the idea of the Old Testament prophets was this redistribution, uh, bringing the valleys up and lowering down the mountains. But what's happened over the last 50 years is the exact opposite. The valleys are wider and deeper, and the mountains are higher and more exclusive. And we just elected, a, evangelicals elected a billionaire to run the country. Why? Can, like I said, I'm not going to answer for evangelicals. This is one of my griefs. I mean, this is a huge lament. How can my people be missing so much? It's not just who they elected. I mean, presidents are going to come and go. It's a pattern of behavior, this attraction to power, this this inability to really understand the poor. I mean, I've been with with good people, you know, and I won't start listing some of these organizations nationally that, that we work alongside, but it's almost like recently it's like, oh yeah, God has a heart for the widow and the orphan, you know, and so they care about the unborn and they care about kids under five, you know, but after that, they just sort of vilify people. This is a missed area of discipleship for the church, period. There's no excuse for it in a time where we have more resources. And that's why I push in my book, quit going to conferences and getting books. I mean, we are so saturated with an awareness and it doesn't change us. It doesn't change us. It doesn't move us beyond what we see and then we feel guilty about it. Oh, the white guilt and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, but I really can't, you know, that's cynical. I can't make a difference anyway. And because they have middle income security, class income security or higher, they almost don't have to. And so this election and now... We didn't, when you, when you think back to, you know, the times of Christ, what we have now is the ability to choose. I mean, let's go to the Jericho Road. You had to walk the dangerous, treacherous road to Jericho to get to Jerusalem. That is not 2017. You don't actually ever have to inconvenience yourself on a dangerous road. And somehow Christians have made safety and security this noble memorial bearing 
that eliminates their responsibility to start with Matthew 25, right? Welcome the stranger. I mean, like there's all these, remember the prisoner. No, I mean, we love felony labels and we love prisons and we want to keep people putting people away because we want to keep ourselves safe. And we've focused so much on our families and their safety that that has become a new God or a worthless idol. It's not going to work towards the redemption of people. I mean, we're, the, the picture is beyond our own individual needs and our own family needs. We have eliminated, we have, we have reduced the gospel and loving our neighbor as ourselves to actually who's my neighbor. And I have created a wall that my neighbor doesn't have to look like different than me, doesn't have to think different than me. And then there's the whole sect of evangelicalism that has said, I'm going to bunker down and we're just going to wait till Jesus comes back because I'm afraid of the world. You know, and we, I mean, I don't, please don't get me started. This is just too long of a night. <laughs> too long, you know, too long of a conversation. No, I'm not going to defend behavior. I mean, that is what, like I said, that's, I don't had, didn't have any desire to really write a book. I mean, I have work to do, but I also feel a responsibility to the young people that look like me that want my job and want to know what they should study to get it. And I'm like, you are missing the point. You need to become proximate to people, not study their issues and work from a theoretical or even a theological bent, relational. I teach a class at Denver Seminary and I always ask them the first question I ask. I mean, it's so cute. There are all these wonderful people who want to come in and they are, I mean, they've never taken a political advocacy course. They probably don't even understand the three branches of government very much, but they are theologians on a journey and they're like, yes, I understand that we need to change systems. So I'm going to take Michelle's class and I'm going to take this policy public. It's called political advocacy, doing justice in the public square. And I get them every time. Okay, tell me why you're here. What's your issue? Don't don't say it out loud. Just write it on a piece of paper. They are so proud to write that on the paper. I mean, you can tell. This is why I'm here. I get to write my issue. Somebody finally wants to know. And then I say, I don't want you to raise your hand. But how many of you know somebody who's been impacted by that issue? The looks on their faces are about the most disappointing. We go from the high extremes of, I can't believe I'm in this class. I'm so lucky to, uh-oh, I hope she doesn't really want to know. That's what I'm pushing into. I want on my epitaph that she was gospel-driven. That's all restoration, right? Gospel-driven and rooted in relationship. And I would say, woe to the person who works on an issue and doesn't love people. Whether you say amen or not, that deserves an amen. Amen. <laughs> amen. All right, that's incarnational theology, people. That's what it's about. Thanks, Michelle, for your time. Thanks, Ryan. We appreciate what you do. No, it's no, good really to be with do. you all. Thanks. If it's not, uh, we can cut this out if it's not appropriate, but uh, there was a comment made last week about where the proceeds of the book go. Is that appropriate to mention I really at this do point? want my book to get bought. So how can we make sure people buy Power this book? Power of Proximity by Michelle Warren. Go to Amazon? Where do they go? You, Where do you well, want you know them to what? go? Well, I mean, if you're in Denver, go to Open Door Ministries. My husband bought a bunch so that 100% of the proceeds could go to Open Door. So there's that. Um, but yeah, you can get it on Amazon. That'll just go to All the right, Amazon So if you're, if you're local, though, which we have probably a lot of locals, go to yeah. Open Door Ministries. Yeah, go to Open Door Ministries. Or Where's the website? At? What? Oh, goodness. ODMDenver.org. ODM Denver. You know, you can find me on Twitter and private message me. I'm not like a Twitter snob. I mean, I actually respond. So where where are you at? What's your handle? What's my handle? At M for Michelle, C as in cat, F as in Frank, Warren, MCF Warren. All right. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter. Retweet me. There you have it. All right. Cheers. 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 
Thank you so much, Janelle, Rob, Ken, and of course, Michelle, for being part of this amazing Brew Theology podcast and for uh, not just talking about things, but for actually doing things in our city and throughout our country that really matters. If you like the episode, we have something to tell you, don't we, Caroline? Don't forget to share the brew. Peace out.